Platforms require a company to be a bit selfless and give away toys and open up and let people come in and build on top of them. And so do careers and so do people. You've got to be selfless. You've got to give it away. And in the end, that actually creates more value for everybody, for both the company but also for you as a person. Welcome to SaaS Connect, the SaaS Partnership Podcast, brought to you by the Cloud Software Association. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. As Stephen said, I live in the Alps. I got in yesterday evening, so my brain is starting to turn to mush. I think it's one or two in the morning about right now. So forgive me any mess-ups here. So today I'm going to talk about the transition from being a product-first company towards maybe not being a platform-first company, but platform-aware company. And to start, I guess I want to borrow a definition of what platform is from Bill Gates so that we're all on the same page. And it's important to think about it this way. A platform is when the economic value of the people that play on top of the platform exceed the value of the company that created that platform. So we'll come back to that. And because this is, I guess, the only talk on careers and partnerships, I thought it was kind of necessary that I talk a little bit about career. So we will go into that a little bit at the end. But I think some of the same lessons that we as a company learned about being a platform company really apply as well to turning yourself into a platform or thinking about your own career as a platform. So for those who are unaware of who Intercom is or what we do, I thought I'd start with just a little bit of history. This is our current marketing page, and as you can see, maybe, hopefully, from that, we are a messaging platform that is focused on sales support and marketing teams. If Slack is the tool that you use for internal communication, we would love for everybody in the world to know Intercom as the tool for all the external communication a company does with their customers. And even if you don't recognize this marketing page, you probably recognize that little messenger down in the bottom right corner of the screen. As far as I'm aware, I think we were the very first company to ever create one of these web installable messengers. We were founded in the same year as WhatsApp. Facebook Messenger came out that same year. So it was really kind of a macro trend that we somehow landed on on accident. And Intercom actually started because of a coffee shop in Dublin called 3FE. And more specific, because of this guy. His name's Colin Harmon. He was the guy that started 3FE. And 3FE is where Intercom's founders used to hang out because it was just around the corner from one of the offices that they used to rent. And they sat there and watched Colin work, and they realized that the way Colin worked wasn't a whole lot different than the way these guys worked. And that's to say that Colin was forced to be really close to his customers. He had to know them by name. He had to remember their drink. He had to build really strong relationships with them because otherwise they would just go to any coffee shop in Dublin. They wouldn't go out of their way to come to 3FE and spend twice as much. And the founders kind of sat there and thought, wow, this is a thing. The internet has done a lot of good for us. It's made it incredibly easy for us to scale companies to enormous size. But it's sort of made the relationship aspect almost optional or obsolete. And, you know, a lot of companies early in the Internet days, we tried to pretend we knew who our customers were, and usually that didn't end well. But the fact remained that, like, this idea of scaling a company to potentially billions of people wasn't easy. It's a really hard problem. And so as they sat there working on the SaaS company they were working on before Intercom and watching Colin work, 
they kind of thought to themselves, like, it would be so nice if we could just talk to our customers instead of having to look them up in a database row and not really know anything about who they are or what they want out of our product. And so they decided they'd try and fix this. And this is actually a screenshot of the app that they were working on. It's called Exceptional. It was a bug tracker. And way back in, I think, 2009 is what that says, they started this little notification system in Exceptional. And you can see that there was no way for anybody to respond in that notification system. But as soon as they added the response piece of that, they allowed people to start conversations with them, they realized the power of what they had. And they actually, it wasn't even a pivot. They completely sold Exceptional and dumped it all wholesale and started Intercom. This is what Intercom looked like when I joined, which was about eight months after the company was officially founded back in 2012. And as you can tell, we were really focused on helping businesses build relationships with customers. And that remains our focus to this day. This is what the original Intercom Messenger looked like, or the first Intercom in-app message looked like. It's pretty basic, but it did the job. And I think, interestingly, eight years ago when we started, we also had an API. Now it's fairly commonplace for SaaS companies to start from day one with an API, but eight years ago it was definitely not the norm. And so we've always had an API, but that's not to say that we had any sort of platform strategy or even platform aspirations at that point. This was literally a tool that we gave to our customers to help them get stuff done as they needed. It wasn't something that we thought of as having any higher purpose or bigger meaning. And that's because, first and foremost, we were a product company. And when I say we were a product company, we preached the gospel. This is from a talk that he gave to about 8,000 people at the Nordic Business Summit, where he basically went on a tirade and said that product first is the future. A couple of years later, one of our directors of product, Brian, gave a talk at our, one of our world tours where he basically just went for the entire talk and talked about how difficult it was for our product team to interact with our very first marketer. We did not do things like deadlines. We did not think about how to launch a product. We would just hit the merge button, and all of a sudden it was there in our customers' hands. And so this idea of like how do you work with other parts of the company didn't really exist at that time for us. And in fact, if you go on our blog, which is pretty prolific, and you check out product management, that category, there's actually 116 individual posts. We have podcasts on top of that that have tons and tons of episodes about how to build better product. And so that's effectively what we've done. We have spent a lot of time building a lot of really great product. And as a product, you exist to do something. I think this is a really important product, or a really important point. There's a very big difference between platform and product in this regard. A product is a tool, in a sense. It has to fulfill a need, and it has to do a good job, and it has to get better and better at doing that thing over time. And that's principally what we focused on for most of Intercom's history. We have gotten very, very good at building product. So if we're very, very good at building product, you would assume that we would just keep doing the same thing and keep profiting from building product, and we would just do that forever, right? But there are two pretty big flaws in this theory or this idea. And they both kind of stem back from this myopic kind of internal facing view that you have when you think about building product. The first problem is that it's extremely easy to copy a product's features and designs. So remember the intercom messenger I just showed you a while ago? This is what it looks like today. It's come a little ways forward. And here's a few other messengers that exist out there in the market. If you squint your eyes, it's actually kind of hard to see the difference or to understand who built these different messengers. And while they do definitely have pros and cons, some are better than others, obviously I think ours is the best, 
it is just a fact of the matter that your product alone is not defensible. It is easy for somebody to go out there and grab the HTML and CSS of our messenger the day we launch it and put a carbon copy out the following week. And in fact, we actually expect it. When we put out a new design of the messenger, we're like, okay, great. In a week, there's going to be a prize for who finds the first copy, just because it's so simple. The second problem is, and I think this one is one that I probably don't have to go into much detail with this group on, but your product is just one link in a much longer workflow for a customer. There are very few companies and very few products that can actually cover the full spectrum of a workflow. And I know I'm kind of beating the dead horse here, but let's just do a quick illustration to make this really clear. So say you've got a business and their customer, and it's a design business, and this design company wants to get paid by their customers. And it turns out that you actually build an application for invoicing. So there you are in the middle, perfect. You've got a solution for them to send invoices and get paid. But if you think about this really simple one, you still have all these other tools around that that are going to be required before the designs first change hands, and then the money can actually flow back towards that design company. But we're platform professionals here, partnerships professionals, so we know what to do here. If product first isn't going to work here, if we're not going to be able to build our way out of this, we should just partner our way out of this. We'll be platform first, won't we? But platforms aren't exactly easy things to get going. It's not a foregone conclusion that you can get a flywheel going in a marketplace or an app store. And I wanted to, I guess, start with a few lessons that we've learned in this transition from being really inwardly focused on building great product and building lots of great product towards giving away some of the blocks and letting our partners build inside of Intercom and actually surface what they're building to our customers. So in December of 2017, we set about kind of redesigning our messenger. It was the fourth major redesign we'd done in the history of Intercom. And the biggest piece of new functionality here was that we were finally opening up some UI in Intercom, not just APIs, but actual UI space, to external developers. We were going to give developers the ability to bring workflows into the messenger. Things that over text are terrible, like scheduling a meeting. It's terrible going back and forth and being like, how about Wednesday? No, no, how about Thursday at 1? Oh, no, it doesn't work for me. How about Friday at 2? That's a really bad experience. But being able to share a little card with a customer from Calendly that shows your calendar and lets them pick the workflow in the context of the conversation makes a ton more sense. It's a way better experience. But it quickly kind of surfaced this question to us of, OK, we want to be more platform-oriented now. We are going to let people build inside of our product, effectively embed their product within ours. So who should we be focusing more on? Should we be focusing on our customers? Or should we be focusing on our partners and trying to enable them as much as possible at this kind of early stage? And we asked a lot of questions, and we talked about it a bunch, and we looked around for what other platforms had done in the past. And one of the examples that really stood out to me of someone who did a really great job of this is Airbnb. And I've heard Brian Chesky say that one of the things they did, one of the thought experiments they did at the very beginning was thinking about what an 11-star Airbnb experience would look like. And it was something like you arrive at SFO, Elon Musk picks you up, flies you out or takes a lap around the planet in a rocket, brings you home, and like hands you the keys to his kingdom for the weekend. So obviously you're not going to get that on Airbnb anytime soon. But they took that experience and then they dialed it back to like what was barely feasibly possible for them to deliver on the customer end. And the point there was you've got to deliver something to a customer. You have to make your customers so excited about your product that they're going to go out there and they're going to create demand for the things that the suppliers of those products want to supply. 
So you have to create the market demand before you can let the market supply that demand. And so for us, that helped us understand that we needed to focus first on our customers, as we always have, then on our partners, and lastly, and almost as an afterthought, we should think about how we were going to get value out of this whole system. We had to sort of trust that if we built something that was really valuable for customers, and we helped our partners also derive a ton of value from this platform, somehow some of that value was going to come back to us eventually. So this was a really important thing for us to know. So we go about building this messenger. We build apps. We have lots of partners that launch with us. Air calls here in the room. They were one of our initial partners that took a bet on us very early, which is great. And we knew this was going to be really valuable for customers. It was solving a real problem. Remember, we had built lots of products. We knew what good product looked like. It was great for support teams. It was great for sales teams. And so you can imagine how disappointed we were when we launched it and less than a third of our customers actually started using them. And so we had to kind of take a hard look and decide that we'd obviously missed something. We had to figure out what it was that we had missed. And we needed to figure out what to do from that point forward. And so we did some research. And what we found was that it wasn't that our customers didn't think these things were useful or didn't think that they were good. It was that they didn't even know they existed. And how could they? We hadn't done a really good job of surfacing this stuff to our customers. And especially if you're someone that works in the intercom inbox, running through support query after support query or sales question after sales question, you're not likely to go digging around the fringes to find these new features. And so we set about rectifying that. The first thing we did is we relaunched our app store. We made the cards for apps much nicer. We added categories. We also actually opened it up public facing so you didn't have to be logged into Intercom anymore to see it, which made a big difference to traffic. The second thing we did is we went to the inbox and we added something that was barely able to even call it a feature, it was so small, but we pinned apps to the bottom there so that customers would see the frequently used apps and the newly installed apps. And so it was a tiny visual reminder to people working in the inbox that, hey, these things exist and they can help you. And then lastly, we took a ton of time really just fixing search in the App Store. So it used to be that I would use failed search data to help me understand what our customers are asking for. And then the team went and made the search very flexible, very fuzzy. It would match against things that were related products. It would match against misspellings. And so all of a sudden, that data became useless for me. But obviously, it was a fantastic improvement for our customers. If somebody searched for scheduling, they would get back Calendly and Outlook and our own meeting scheduler. So it was a really big help in helping customers understand what was there and what could help them. And the results were fantastic. The use of apps in Messenger went up a huge amount. And the overall use of any app in the platform went up massively as well, to the point that we've got almost 70% of our customers using apps now. And that brings us to lesson number two, which is it takes a lot of product thinking to get your platform right. There's a lot of embedded product knowledge and usefulness and like understanding that goes into building the sort of, I guess, interactions correctly, making sure the incentives are there, making sure people understand what it is that exists and how to use it. And that was something that our years of building really great product had really helped us to do well. We were able to very quickly turn those projects around because we've got really great product process. We start by really deeply understanding a problem. We use first principles thinking when going through the solutions and trying to figure out what we're going to do. So just because you are trying to become a platform doesn't mean you're allowed to kind of overlook the more base levels of stuff. So this is our app store today. And we had the very good fortune to work with a lot of really great partners and really great companies. 
And we can now feel this momentum starting to build. The flywheel has just barely started turning. We've got partners that are coming to us. We have companies that have built on no other platform except for Intercom. We have people giving us really great feedback, both about the App Store and how it's driving traffic for their own businesses. And all of that stuff is great. It makes us feel fantastic. So it's time to take the 30% off the top like everybody else. We don't think so. <laughs> and it's kind of because we took a step back and we went, what are we trying to get out of this? Is this just about being a revenue stream, or is this something that we want to be more of a strategic, defensible initiative to help Intercom be more competitive in the market? And it's really about that second part. But when you take a look around and you start seeing all of the different app marketplaces that are out there and all of the different app stores that all of the different companies have these days, you start to realize that it's sort of almost table stakes now for SaaS businesses to have some sort of app marketplace or app store. And because of that, because it's become table stakes, just having an app store is not enough. It's not a defensible position anymore. It's just everybody expects you to integrate with everything around you. And if you don't, you're actually just way behind the curve. And so we had to think about this and think about what exactly is strategy and how do we form a defensible strategy around platform and around this app store that we've built. This paper's been around for nearly two decades. It's on Harvard Business Review. Go read it right now. Even if you have to pay for HBR, go do it. This is sort of the canonical guide to how to form defensible positions in any market. And it's got a lot of really interesting concepts, and I think it was a really big part of what helped us understand what we need to think about when we're thinking about how to make this sort of app store marketplace thing valuable for ourselves. And the lesson there is that it's not product or platform, it's both. It really has to be both. The point of Michael Porter's paper is that it's not any single thing that you do. It's the interlocking structure of all of the things that you do. And it's how those things reinforce each other that actually create any sort of defense. The example that he uses in the paper is all about Southwest Airlines. And it kind of shows in a really simplistic way that having few planes forced them to have fast turnaround times. The fact that they didn't allow lots of checked baggage and they didn't check baggage through to your other flights and they didn't have meals in the planes made those turnaround times faster. And all of those things added up to lower cost for the airline in total, which meant that they could pass that lower cost on to customers. So that entire thing is actually, that web is very hard to copy. It was going to be impossible for someone like American Airlines to turn around and retool their entire system. And so... We have to think about platform, and all of us have to think about platforms, and our products for that matter, in terms of this interlocking web of how do all these things fit together, and how can I strengthen the connections between these things over time. So I promised we'd come back and make this somewhat about career and not just products and platforms. Uh, and when I was writing this talk, I kind of looked at each of those lessons and went, huh, there's a pretty clear way to think about this in terms of you as a person and you as trying to build a career. Lesson number one, knowing your audience. So we talked about focusing on customers, then partners, and then your own company. And effectively, two of those groups are external to your company. One of them is internal. So the lesson here for anybody trying to get ahead in anything really is focus on value outside of you first. Try to ask the question, what can I do to bring value to the situation? How can I give anybody else more value than I take for myself? knowing that eventually there's some compounding there that's going to happen and you're going to end up ahead. The second lesson is that it takes a lot of product thinking to get platform right. 
This one is maybe a slightly stretched metaphor, <laughs> but I think that this one in terms of careers is all about understanding exactly what and how you can build kind of the interactions around your career. And so it's not necessarily about specific skills. It's not necessarily about who you know, although both of those things are really important. It's sort of about that process of deciding what it is you want and deciding how it is you're going to go about it. And so taking a step back and trying to think, what are my goals? Where do I actually want to end up? What's valuable to me? A big part of why I live in Italy is because I value flexibility and I value that remote working ideal. And there are definite trade-offs to that, for sure. And so knowing that there's trade-offs to all things, taking a step back, doing some first principles thinking, and actually not trying to just jump at every shiny thing that comes along is really, really important to getting what you want out of the situation. And the last lesson is that it's all about those interlocking relationships. Coming back to sort of what Intercom exists to do is to build relationships. A career is really about relationships, isn't it? It's about the connections you can make with other people. It's about the value you can give to them. It's about being able to reach out and touch this large network of people and to help that large network and for that large network to then in turn help you when it's your time. So if a platform is there to build value in any system and to build more value outside than inside, I think that's really the great metaphor between product and platform and your career and how you can actually build something of value over time. As long as you're focused effectively on balancing, platforms really can't function without balance. We see this with Apple right now. Sort of skewed the balance off to one side, and now they're getting attacked from all sides because of their non-competitive practices. They've lost that balance. And so platforms require balance, and so do people. Platforms require a company to be a bit selfless and give away toys and open up and let people come in and build on top of them. And so do careers and so do people. You've got to be selfless. You've got to give it away. And in the end, that actually creates more value for everybody, for both the company but also for you as a person. So that's it. That was really good. Thank Any you. questions? Yep. Yeah, great talk. Thanks. We're uh, at the platform or no platform stage of our business as well. Right. Is there a right time to kind of make that decision to move towards the platform model? And if yes, when? When was that time for Intercom? I think it's a really hard call. I don't think there's any like objective measure where you're like, okay, we've done A, B, and C, now it's time. I think it really kind of coming back to that Michael Porter thing, it's about like figuring out how it fits into the overall picture and also about stage of company. Like there's always been plenty of things at Intercom where we're like, we would love to do X, but it, we just can't right now. Like, we have too much on the plate. We have too small of a team. We, whatever reason, we would love to do it. We know it would be valuable, and we have no bandwidth for it. And so figuring out how it fits into that overall picture, but then also kind of going, can we actually pull this off effectively or not? And so I think those are two at least good questions to get started on. Did you actually create a specific team for the platform for that element? And was that something that you said, okay, we're actually going to have to hire, put a specific kind of squad in place for the platform, or did you just use your existing kind of... Yes, I guess the, the TLDR version of this is way back in the day, that slide I showed you, that original API, I mean, the team was 10 people at that point. Like, the whole company was 10 people at that point. And so we did not have any sort of team specifically for that. It was just sort of a side project for an engineer every now and then to add an API endpoint. I did all the documentation for it. It was super bare bones. Somewhere a few years in, we did start with a uh, developer platform team that continued to iterate the APIs and started to focus more on like, okay, what could we do in this space? 
We know we need to at least maintain the APIs and that set of things, but what else? That team sort of limped along for quite a while, and we had people building. You know, Partners were coming to us and building on us without us even asking for it or knowing what to do with them once they did for quite a while. And it wasn't really until last year that we went, okay, we actually need a team for this. And so now we have that dev platform team, which is focused on building the capabilities for partners. We have a marketplace team, which is focused on driving demand. So all those things that I showed you, the search and that stuff, was driven by that marketplace team. And they, I mean, really it is just like, how do we drive demand for apps within our customer base? And then we also have a handful of us. Uh, Derek's sitting right there behind you. He works on the BD side of the house. I work on the product partnerships side of the house. And then we've got a product marketer. And that's kind of our partnerships team for a very large company. There's only three of us. So you now have big customers that use the intercom. And yep. I'm sure for them, the SLA, you know, the uptime of your messenger is a big thing. Yep. And in your case, you're embedding the partner's application yes. right in the core of Intercom, right? Yes. So I'm curious how you handle that additional variable now that potentially reduces the peace of mind uh, re- connected to the uptime. Yeah, so thankfully the uptime of the messenger versus the uptime of apps are totally separate. So an app can't take down the messenger or stop the messenger from loading. So the messenger will load no matter what. If the app errors out, it just shows an error screen in the card. And so... That's one way we've at least sort of sandboxed the destructive capacity of the app there. But you're right, it's a prime concern. It's one, honestly, we haven't done a very good job of like monitoring up to this stage. We sort of rely on our support team and our partners' support teams for catching these things at the moment. But it's something we know as we scale we're going to have to fix and like really keep an eye on availability of individual apps within the App Store and know how to build great escalation paths towards our partners for when we get a lot of reports that say the Calendly app isn't working, we have to know who in Calendly we need to talk to to make sure that that gets fixed quickly. Yeah, hi Jeff. You mentioned that Intercom's more focused on meeting the needs of your customers as mm-hmm. opposed to your partners. Mm-hmm. How is Intercom determining what their customers need or what applications would improve their user experience? Yeah, we've got quite a lot of different vectors for figuring that stuff out. We've got a really pretty comprehensive product process around both uh, collecting feedback through support channels and through sales channels. All of that stuff funnels into the product team. We have a product research team that does totally separate qualitative research. We've got a data science team that does quantitative research, and all that stuff basically pours into the kind of top of the funnel for PMs in a given area. And so the PMs then do their roadmap setting based on understanding of all that data. I'm now also a, a strong input into there, and it's kind of an interesting back and forth because what we might come to is like, okay, our customers need X. Is that something we want to build as a feature, or is that something we want to open up and give to partners to kind of fix the capability there? And so it's a matter of sort of balancing those two things and figuring out what our customers are asking for, what stuff we're going to build, and then what stuff we want to give away. As a follow-up question just to that, mm-hmm. so you think about you know, the build versus the partner, and the partner enabling the APIs them to build to you, correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. When do you make the decision of you building to them? Yes, it's in that same process. And there's kind of like the way we think about capabilities from my point of view is like there's stuff that we want to just build as features or that we have to build as features because we don't have the capability to have a partner build into it. So that's an obvious thing. Like that'll just be an internal feature of Intercom. 
secondarily, there's a layer of apps, the Googles and Microsofts of the world, that are never going to build to Intercom's platform. And so if we want to have an integration there, we've got to build it ourselves. And so we've done that with a handful, a couple of dozen apps over the years. And then the next layer down there is who are the apps that we think we can get them to build the app, but they're going to need help from our end, and who I'm going to go and personally like try and convince to build the app. And then the next layer down from that is sort of the long tail of partners, where it's we really want to be able to go out there publicly to them and say, like, here are three different white space areas that we are sort of, at least for the next year or two, definitely not going to touch. This is an opportunity for anybody that wants to build into that area. Obviously, wonderful presentation. Thank you. Maybe you sort of indirectly already communicated this, but I want to try to get it a little bit clearer. Mm-hmm. You've got a platform, and and you're making it so that people can connect to you. Mm-hmm. What is your reciprocal view in terms of being a participant and maybe a little bit more second-order thinking yeah. around you being a partner to other people's platform yeah. with your platform? Yeah, the absolutely. whole thing is a big mesh. Yeah, totally, 100%. How, how, how it goes to, both ways, for yeah. sure. So tell us a little bit more about being the partner in someone else's platform. Sure. So... I'll get to that second. There's like one other little piece that I think is important to think about, and this applies to everybody. There's sort of a hierarchy of value that different types of integrations bring to any product. The base level is that it syncs data out to another system. That's it. That's all it does. The next layer in is that it syncs data into your system. Generally accepted principle that more data within an application is probably going to empower that application to do more stuff. And so, especially in Intercom's case, it's critically important that our customers bring their data from a lot of different sources and combine it all in Intercom so that they get a clear picture of who the customer is. The next layer up there is data that goes both ways and stays in sync real time. And so, that's kind of the next hierarchy of needs in the sense of apps. And then above that, you get into, okay, it's syncing all the data and doing stuff in the UI. And so that's one way that we think about value of apps. And for that matter, when we go to think about other platforms, it sort of comes down to, does this workflow fit better in the mental model on their workspace or on their marketplace or on ours? Or should it exist in both? And in a lot of cases, it does just exist in both. You know, like a great example is we've got an app for Zendesk that... In fact, we've got multiple apps for Zendesk that do different things. But we've got an app in their marketplace. We have an app in our marketplace. In those two cases, they do different things. In some cases, it's the same app just listed in two places. And one of the cards or one of the listings is a pointer to the other one. It just says, hey, there is an app that exists for this. Go over here and install it on that product. We do a lot of work with Oracle type mm-hmm. of environments, you know, and obviously enterprise level. Yeah. A lot of sophistication in terms of um, interactions between corporations, companies. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there starts to be quite a bit of conversation around the infamous system of record. Yes. As you can describe this network and mesh of bits Mm -hmm. of data flying all over the place, have you hit and bumped your head into who's the grown-up making the decision of where the so-called system of record is and all the issues that come with keeping it updated Yeah. so you yeah. don't have synchronization problems. And yep. I can go on, unfortunately, much so, longer. So, yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. There's, like, uh, certainly Salesforce comes up a lot in those conversations. And it's 
effectively, we try to sidestep that whole, like, we're not going to get into the contest of who's going to be the system of record and that sort of thing. What we want to enable is customers to do what they want with their data and interact with different systems. And so I think the important thing there is, like, what does the 70 or 80% of customers want this integration between these two products to do? Is it, in the case of our Salesforce app, it will sync leads from intercom into Salesforce, and it will keep track of all the conversation data as like notes on that Salesforce record. And so it's effectively just giving visibility and like giving SDRs the ability to create a new Salesforce object from intercom and not have to manually copy over all of the notes there. That solves it for most intercom customers that integrate with Salesforce. Now, obviously, there are plenty of customers that want to do super customized, completely different stuff. And for that, we kind of just tell people, the platform is open, build your own app. Because you can either, on Intercom, you can build a private app that's just for your company's usage alone, or you can build an app that's public that you then list on the App Store. And there's nothing, there's like way more private apps out there than there are listed public apps. And so in those cases, it's like, we can help you understand how to do it, but if you're in the weird small percentage that wants to do it really, like in a really customized way, you're going to be on your own. All right, Jeff, we'll let you go back skiing. Yes, thank you. Thank you, guys. If you like this and want more great insights on software partnerships, you've got to rate, like, and subscribe. And join us at thecloudsoftwareassociation.com. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce a podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. We'll see you on the next episode.